We have a lot of Old Testament to dive into and to cover. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along or the words will be on the screen. But we're going to start in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, listen to this story, the beginning story of Abraham and God's work with Abraham. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, uh, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So how many of you know the story? Um, if you're new to the Bible, uh, this is really one of the pillar uh, accounts, one of the pillar stories about God's work in and through humanity to do uh, to reclaim um, his people after the fall. And um, it's really just like a front and center uh, story of God's hope uh, expressed through humanity to the world. And he calls this random guy, Abram. He calls this random guy to be a vehicle for his love to the world. And um, he's basically saying, I'll take you and your wife, and, and who's infertile, and um, as the story goes, and we'll see that here in a second, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will stand by your side, and I will bless all the people of the earth through you. Um, and it goes on, it says, so Abram went, he obeyed, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So he leaves um, the safety and security of his land, he takes his family, everybody in his household, and, and sets out. He leaves his homeland, and he sets out to follow this call of God. And it says in verse 10, uh, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Um, and if you're, here's the thing, and if you never read this story before, he's not being romantic, okay? So let's just keep reading. Um, he says, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels, like you do. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household became, uh, and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. 
Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way and his wife and everything he had. So Abram tells his wife to go to Pharaoh and, and stick her neck out so that he will be made safe and, and make a whole bunch of profit. Um, it was a very entrepreneurial move. I mean, he's cunning. He's a shrewd entrepreneur. But at the same time, here's the thing. He's a liar. He's, he's a sexist jerk of a husband. And um, unfortunately, this is not a one-time slip-up. Uh, let's fast forward to a few years to Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 through th 3. Listen to this. Now, Abram moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And while he was staying in Gerar, uh, for a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abram said to his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Does this sound familiar? But God said to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. So, church, it happens again. The story happens again. They lie. Uh, Abram lies about who Sarah is to protect himself. It's all about self-protection and, and self-betterment in the mind of Abram. And, and this kind of pattern lives on in Abram's son. Okay, so Abram has a son. Um, first of all, he has a son named Ishmael, who he has because he is uh, impatient on waiting for God. And so he has um, a son, not with Sarah, but with her servant. And then later on, he has another son with Sarai uh, named Isaac, um, and this next story is about his son, Isaac. So Genesis 26, it says, Now there was famine in the land, besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. So the exact same king in the exact same place. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while. And I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore upon your father Abraham. Okay? I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give them all these lands. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me, did everything I required of him keeping my commands, my decrees, and my destructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. Okay, this is, here's the, the setup, obviously. The inheritance, the promise, the, the protection of God is passing from Abraham down through his family line, through Isaac, um, which is all fantastic. But watch what happens. Okay, verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife, he thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is so beautiful. Sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? Exact same king, exact same place, like father, like son. And guess what? It lives on in Isaac's sons as well. The oldest son Isaac has is Esau by like a minute or two. Uh, trailed by his 
twin brother, uh, Jacob. And uh, it, needless to say, these two boys do not get along. They are totally different. They do not get along. Genesis chapter 27, uh, it goes like this. He, Jacob, went to his father and said, my father. Yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. So at this point, um, Isaac is, is old, he's blind. He's going to pass on an inheritance blessing to his firstborn son, Esau. Jacob works up a little trick with his mom to trick and lie to his dad about who he is. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly? So obviously, um, Isaac had given instructions to Esau to go uh, hunt and cook for him to have this blessing meal. How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he proceeded to bless him. So there's a little trickery here. Jacob um, actually puts like goat hair on his arms, and so he, he feels hairier. Um, and he says, are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. So here we see Jacob, who's the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. We see Jacob lying, okay, deceiving his dad into giving him the inheritance, Okay? And, and this is a pattern in, in, in Jacob's life. He's actually, uh, his name actually means deceiver. He actually becomes somewhat of a con man. Um, and, and, but the family uh, doesn't end there. Okay? This the family line thing doesn't end there. Fast forward because it gets worse. Um, not only here, but uh, it lives on in Jacob's children too. So Jacob has 12 sons. Okay, two of which with his first wife, he has 12 sons total with uh, four different women. Uh, Genesis 37, 2 is the account. Check this out. It says, this is the account of, of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. So Joseph is the youngest. And uh, since he's the youngest, the baby of the family is shocking. He's a tattletale, right? And so it says in verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph. Israel is a renamed, Jacob is renamed Israel by God. It's another story in there. You have to check it out. So Israel is loved. Uh, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other others of his other sons, sorry, uh, because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him, for Joseph. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him 
and, and could not speak a kind word of him. So as the story continues, uh, Joseph has this dream about his brothers bowing down to him and um, it doesn't go well. His brothers don't like it. Um, and one day he's alone in the field and they come up with this plan that they're going to fake his death, sell him into slavery, make some money, and then they are rid of him, but he's not dead. Um, and so in verse 31, check this out. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the, the, uh, the robe, that special robe, in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, uh, mourned for his son many days. All the sons and daughters came to comfort him. Notice the duplicity here of all the other 11 sons, all right? But he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until the, I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So I know this has been like a big whirlwind run through on four generations of the family, but we start to see a pattern emerge. And this is why it's sometimes really good to read large chunks of scripture at a time instead of just small chunks because you begin to see a pattern emerge. So check out the pattern we see in Abraham, Okay, and in Isaac and in Jacob and into Jacob's sons. All right, we see lies. We see lying, big time lying. Abraham lies twice that we know of, obviously with his wife and, and trying to protect himself. Isaac does the same thing. Okay, Jacob lies to his own dad with the help of his mom. Okay, and then Jacob's sons end up lying to him about Joseph. Then we see misogyny and sexual addiction. We see Abraham sleeping with Sarah's servant. Uh, we see uh, Isaac. Well, for some reason, well, we see Isaac's pattern is a little different, but we'll get back to that some other time. Um, Jacob is a full-on polygamist. I mean, he has four wives, 12 sons. We see favoritism. Notice Abraham favors Isaac over Ishmael, even though Ishmael's firstborn. Same thing with Isaac. Isaac favors Jacob over Esau, even though Esau's firstborn. Okay? Uh, Jacob favors Joseph over all of his 11 previous sons. So we see favoritism, and then we see sibling rivalry. So whenever you see favoritism, you see sibling rivalry. We see Abraham, um, the rift between Ishmael and Isaac. We see uh, the stolen inheritance of Jacob and, and, and Esau. And then we see Jacob's sons selling Joseph into slavery. And so when we see, uh, lives, we see sin living from one generation into the next. It just continues to almost trace itself through a generation. And we see this unique pattern in this family, but we also actually see this biblically in other places too. Go and read the story of David and his sons. 
and the sexual infidelity and the, uh, the different things that these sons deal with. But check out Exodus chapter 20. Background here is, uh, this is the people of Israel, the people of God. They're out of, the, uh, out of the, the slavery of Egypt, and they're in um, the desert, and God is trying to form them to be the kind of people that can one day possess the promised land. And so they're at the base of Mount Sinai, and, and uh, God is about to, in a sense, give them the Ten Commandments. So... Um, uh, you're probably thinking about some old 50s, 60s uh, movies at the moment here. But uh, check this out. It says in, ch in chapter 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, okay? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. So this is a curious passage, and if you're new to the Bible, this might sound terrifying, like, oh my goodness, am I going to get punished for the things my grandfather did? Um, let's talk about it. Here's what I believe is, is happening. I think this uh, sometimes gets taken wildly out of context, um, but as far as we can tell, God is not saying that the great-grandchildren get punished for the great-great-grandfather's sins. Okay, he, But he is essentially saying these things right here, these three things. The first one is generational sin is a real thing. It's a very real thing. We'll get into that here more in a second, but it's like, it's almost like DNA. And there's a bent, there's a bent to a specific kind of sin that ends up traveling through a family. And we see this all over the place. And we'll get into that here in a second. The second one is this. Sin actually has consequences that last for generations. And some of you know this really, really well. It's so very clear uh, in your life because you've experienced it. So that divorce of your grandparents, of your parents, uh, that abuse that happened, that infidelity, whatever that damage was, it ends up having a ripple effect down the family tree and out. And so that's a very real thing. And some of you have experienced the pain of the brokenness in your family line and you still experience it today. The third thing is, is that I think this is very important to understand is God's mercy and God judge, God's judgment. On the scale of God's mercy and judgment, mercy wins every time. So look what the author actually says here. He punishes to the third and fourth generation, but he shows mercy to this thousandth. And so imagine a huge scale, and you've got judgment and you've got mercy. Mercy is so heavily weighted that God ultimately is a God of mercy, but he is a God of justice and judgment. 
And if he's a God of justice, okay, he will punish sin, but he is more a God of mercy. And so here's the idea. It's not that God will punish you for your dad's sin, okay? But that odds are that those sins live on in you or have the potential to manifest in your life just like God punishes grandfathers and great-grandfathers, God will punish us for the same sins that they committed. And so the odds are that these sinful traits can live on in us. And we talk about violent tendencies and anger issues and abuse and uh, infidelity. Those things can live on in us. The point that we're trying to make and this is really, really, really important, is that your family of origin has a massive effect on you today. Whether you want to believe it or not, your family of origin has a massive effect on you. And whether it's a divorce, uh, maybe there was a death in the family that just derailed uh, plans and dreams. Maybe there's abuse that has tracked its way down. Maybe there's addiction. Maybe there's a, a pattern of addiction in your family. Maybe that's a, a, a life of poverty or a life of wealth. I mean, we bring so much with us when it comes to our economics and our expectations about economics that if you grew up in poverty or you grew up in wealth, that forms you, okay? Uh, pressure to perform. You can see that in families, a way of relating to each other. Maybe if there's, there's cut off in your family or, or, or we don't talk about hard things. And so there's this weird passive aggressive stuff that happens. Uh, living in fear of not having enough can be something that pushes down through a family. A lack of commitment or maybe a string of infidelity or a traumatic event has cascaded through, down through the family tree. And you have a story. We said this last week, you and I both have a story. We actually have an origin story, just like Jacob, just like Abraham, just like Joseph. And so here's the thing. There are both bad and good things that have happened to us and have shaped us. It's part of our history. And we all carry the bad and the good with us into our present and into our future. You and I, just like Abraham, we are vehicles. Okay? We are vehicles of the good and the bad. So Abraham is a vehicle. Okay, think about Abraham now. Lots of mistakes, lots of sin, lies, sexual sin, favoritism. And he was still a vehicle, okay, to pass on God's blessing in the world. Passed all of this down. And what if that is kind of our story too? What if you and I have, as people of God, we have much to pass down, an inheritance uh, of being part of the family of God, and at the same time, we still bring with us this unsavory part into our present. We carry inheritance, and we carry generational sin because we're human, because we have stories. In our culture, 
And our culture is very, it's extremely, it's hyper-individualistic, okay? Uh, our culture wants to say, our secular, secular culture wants to say, like, you are untethered, you are unconnected uh, to anything in your past. Nothing comes with you. Uh, just believe that. And, and that's one of the messages of this culture we live in. And the problem is, is that um, thinking that you're immune from the past has actually made its way into the church. And there are church messages all about this. So that in, in church circles, it sounds like this, okay? It sounds like you are saved from all that. Like the moment you accepted Jesus, that you surrendered your life to Jesus, God healed you and all of that, um, you're in a new family, we'll get into that here in a second, and all that biological stuff does not have power over you anymore. You're going to heaven when you die, don't dwell on the past. But I have found this to be a very shallow and dangerous way to look at apprenticeship to Jesus. And, and there's a reason that, um, that people obviously don't want to look back at their past. I get it. But I think that there's so much we can learn and, and God can heal when we do so. Listen to this quote from Pete Scazzaro. He says this, to, beco to become a Christian... And to be adopted into God's family with the new name of Christian does not erase the past. God does not give us amnesia or do emergency emotional spiritual reconstructive surgery. God does forgive the past, but he does not erase it. We are given a new start, but we still come in as babies drinking milk and are expected to die daily to the parts of our lives that do not honor God and follow Jesus. And some of you are probably going, hey, Ryan, that's great. I mean, I understand that some people have bad uh, growings up and um, have difficult pasts, but um, I come from a long line of awesome. And I mean, everybody, all the way back we can trace are just Perf they're incredible people. Um, and here's what I would say. That sounds great. But I don't believe you. Because there are ways that we all hide. And so the reason why we're jumping into this is because the reality is if you and I have origin stories and we have a family history. And as we've seen biblically. In, in many places, but biblically, that family generational sin travels, the reality, the reality is that all of us have baggage. All of us have baggage. And the joke that the, your bags fly free, that it, it's true. It's a true statement. They come with you. They come with you into your marriage. They come with you into your uh, career. They come with, come with you the whole way through. And some of you believe that by looking at your past, uh, looking at your family um, stuff, is actually dishonoring to your parents. And that's not the goal. The, the goal isn't to bag on your parents and um, to nitpick their parenting and who they are and their personality. No, it's not it at all. Honoring your parents doesn't mean you ignore the sin and the weakness 
of how their life impacted you. It doesn't mean that. Uh, some of us believe that by ignoring it, it won't affect us. So let's keep a lid on it, okay? There's a famous uh, scene in the movie The Village um, about this whole group of people that decide to escape um, the pain of life by moving into um, a community together. And every single home has a trunk of pain and secrets. And the thinking is, for some of us, is that we just keep a lid on that trunk of pain and secrets and um, we won't have to deal with it anymore and it won't affect us. Um, what I'm proposing is that in order to truly move ahead in becoming like Jesus, in apprenticing Jesus, we have to actually go back. And a lot of you are struggling with that. I get it. Um, you have been formed, you have been taught in church circles that discipleship means information. It means more Bible studies. It means uh, more knowledge about the Bible and the church and the right things to say and the right things not to say and things like that. But I would propose that discipleship is uh, very little about information and it's more about transformation. And the, the more we're willing to allow God to trans, transform those places in our lives that are below the surface, that maybe aren't even uh, known to us, okay? So those places, that, that knowledge we don't have yet about our family, um, until we're allowing God to do that work that's under the surface, we're not going to really experience uh, true uh, healing and true transformation into the people that God wants us to be. And this is not just about us. Like we said earlier, it's not about self-help. It's about what God is trying to do in the world. The world needs transformed kingdom people, not perfect people, but authentic uh uh, people who, have, who, who know their own brokenness, who have walked through dark things, to be able to walk with people who are broken and experience darkness. Okay? Um, listen, church, I am so done with a veneer of Christianity. I am so done with it. This world is so done with it. It's not a pretender religion. This is an honest uh, assessment of who we are and how God wants us to be, who God wants us to, how God wants us to have life to the fullest and life abundant. And we have to understand how our family history, okay, is directly impacting how we love God and how we love others or how we don't love God and how we don't love others. We carry inheritance and we carry generational sin and baggage. And as the family of God, if we ignore our origin stories, we actually end up, here's the thing, we actually end up telling a very inauthentic and disconnected version of the gospel. We actually end up um, bringing dishonor to God. 
And so the classic line, I mean, if you took U.S. history in high school, the classic Winston Churchill line is those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. That is true in world history, and that is true in your history. If you fail to learn from it, you are condemned to repeat it. And so here's what we're doing. And I told a couple other pastors that we were doing this this week, and they, they were just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, maybe they'll follow along. We'll see. Okay, we're actually, we've put out some resources for you, um, and we're going to communicate all that to you uh, about doing a family genogram. What's a genogram? Well, I think in fourth grade, we all did family uh, trees, right? And you had to go home and write down your great-grandmother and all that kind of stuff. Okay, this is a family tree with hot sauce, okay? This is a, a tool that allows you to map your family and then to put in some extra elements um, of, of, of pain, of, of blessing into your family tree. And the goal is, is this would be an exercise, uh, a spiritual exercise that you enter into prayerfully um, that you might be able to develop and see uh, that you'll see patterns develop um, of pain and brokenness and sin and maybe even blessing and triumph and celebration in your family. And that maybe God would be sharing with you through this experience, the Spirit would be working on you um, and me to uh, identify some things and to, uh, and to do one of the next few things that I'm about to share. So when you see, when you, when you identify some things in your family history, when you see it, you identify it. Um, the, and this is the work. This is like the 90% the of this is showing up. And, and so my encouragement for you is that you would jump in and try this. But you would see patterns and events in your history um, and, and through listening prayer, through listening, through, through maybe looking at some scrapbook pictures, uh, maybe asking questions of your parents or your brothers and sisters um, in your life, that this would help you see things that you've never seen before. Now, I want to encourage you, some people, this is a lot of work that people do when they go to counseling and they get therapy. Some of you listening to this maybe on one or two pendulums of the counseling therapy, um, you know, uh, divide. The one divide would be anti-therapy. Um, there is a, a cluster of this within the, the American Christian church that thinks that counseling and therapy um, is not necessary, that we should just pray about it. Um, I will have that argument uh, with you all day long, um, that that is a just, that's a poor, poor, uh, dangerous actual argument. The second one is, the, is on the other side, that, that people are therapy addicts, and I've, I've met some therapy addicts, and forget God, forget scripture, forget community, I'm just going to um, just continually uh, be in a, a therapist's office, and I think there's a healthy balance. Now, we need each other, um, but there are trained professionals that help us unearth things in our family so that we can see them, okay? And, and many of you this year, I have recommended people to counseling, whether marriage counseling or individual counseling, more than any other season in ministry. And I'm so proud of you. 
So many of you have taken on this, this uh, recognize that there's work that needs to be done in your life, and I'm really proud of you. So the first thing is you see it. You see it. You look for it. You find it. You investigate your history, your family of origin. Second one is this. You take responsibility. Now, what do I mean by that? Meaning, um, there are things that have happened in your family history, and you will see patterns. And, um, and the tendency is to blame shift. Um, oh, my father did that. Um, or his grandfather did that. Or, um, and if you see a pattern show up in your life, is to say um, little things like, oh, I was young. Or I, that was before I met Jesus. Okay, the problem with that is that there are people that you and I have hurt before we met Jesus, but we're still, we're still us in a sense that they still carry a wound from the things that we've done, whether as a parent or a brother or sister or a friend before we met Jesus. And we need to clean that up, not make it go away, but own up to it, take responsibility for it. The first, after the sin in the garden, Adam and Eve, what do they do? They blame. Adam says, this is the woman you gave me. She made me do it, okay? So the point here is not to get mad at your dad or to get mad at your grandmother, okay? Um, the point is, is to take on the responsibility of going, okay, there's potential for this to continue in me. And I need to own that. And the third thing is, is you need to take it to God in your community. And this is that vulnerability piece. And we're going to talk more about, uh, you're, you're going to love this series, church. It just keeps getting better. So for those of you who took um, the, 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 the challenge early on in this series and go, hey, you know what? I don't know if I want to do this. I'm going to check back in at the end of February. Um, I'm so proud of you for not doing that, but it's going to get harder, okay? Because we're going to be talking about being authentic and uh, open and vulnerable next week. And the, here's the thing. The worst thing you can do is hide this, is bury this, okay? Uh, secrets have a tendency to enslave us. They have power when they're secret. When we have secrets, we keep family secrets. When we don't tell anybody our histories, we actually, that, those secrets end up having power and they enslave us. When, when, when these secrets, when this death and pain and sickness is dragged into the light, it loses its power. And we have the potential to be reparented into the family of God, born into a new family. This is that born again idea from John 3, you know, the football verse 316. He's talking to Nicodemus, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he's talking about being born again. Well, it's being born again into a new family. It's being reparented. The dominant metaphor in the New Testament is of a family, not as an individual. Okay, so 
And, and here's the other thing. Don't hear reparent by the church as my job to reparent you. This is our job to reparent each other, uh, to reteach us how to live in the family of God. So your biological family does not have to determine your future. Your spiritual, your adopted family, you were adopted into Jesus and to God's family, that determines your future. But you can fully flourish in this family by digging in to your past. Now, all of Roman adoption, you know this story, all of Roman adoption is a beautiful thing. Roman adoption, when you were adopted by the father of the household into a family, uh, he could never uh, disown you. You got full inheritance as the whole family. You are brought into everything and, and nothing could take that, nothing could strip that away from you. That's what our adoption into Jesus is. We are in a new family. We are a new creation. We are living with a new uh, identity, okay? But listen to this quote from Pete Scazzaro. I think this is really important for us to hear. He says, the critical factor that most significantly determines my new identity as a Christian, as a Christ follower, is not blood of my biological family, but the blood of Jesus. We are given a new name, Christian, a new inheritance, freedom, glory, hope, resources a hundredfold, a new, a new power, the Holy Spirit, to live this new life. We become partakers in the divine nature, able to enjoy the absolute security and stability, freedom, intimacy, and confidence in prayer of children in God's family. There exists a new dynamic in the life inside of me, the life of Jesus. Now, I just want to share one last story that's so important for us, and I think it'll be helpful for you to understand why, no matter what your age is, some of you are older and you're like, ah, I've been too far down the road. No, let's do the work. Some of us, you know, have, uh, you know, older kids, but they're still young. Some of you have little kids. Some of you are single. Let's do the work. Listen to this. This is a, a story uh, from a Hasidic rabbi on his deathbed. He says, when I was young, I set out to change the world. When I grew older, I, perce I perceived that this was too ambitious, so I set out to change my state. This too, I realized as I grew older, was too ambitious, so I set out to change my town. When I realized I could not even do this, I tried to change my family. Now as an old man, I know that I should have started by changing myself. If I'd started with myself, maybe then I would have succeeded in changing my family, the town, or even the state, and who knows, maybe even the world. Church, we've got to have courage because the gospel is beckoning us to change the world, and it has to start here. So I want to I just pray for courage for you to move forward. And some of you are sitting here right now and you're like, I really don't think this is necessary to go back. Do you know what that is? That's a huge jumbotron flashing saying, you need to go back. You need to do it. Let me pray. Father, uh, give us the courage. The courage to take a, a peek, to, to dive in, to ask questions. God, it's important for us to understand that you want us to go back in order for us to move forward. 
that you've created us with inheritance. You've blessed us with this inheritance. And at the same time, we're also bringing baggage with us. God, show us what it looks like to be healed and transformed in, in, in specific ways in our life. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, take a look. There's some resources for you. Uh, there's a reading list. There's a podcast. And there's a retreat coming up that all has to do with what we're talking about. So please take a look at it and jump in. Thanks. Thanks.